to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Are you ready for the word? Super cool. Okay. Let me start off first by sharing a story. You know, um, many of you know I spent three years abroad. Uh, I did ministry school and uh, people always ask, you know, uh, there there are a few standard questions that people ask and people would ask like, Andre, tell me, um, like, what is the major takeaway of your time in ministry school? Uh, Andre, tell me what is your most profound spiritual experience? And one of my favorite questions when people ask me, like, Andre, do you have any funny ministry stories? Funny ministry stories. As, as a youth, you know, we had like a bunch of like funny different stuff that happened during ministry. Like, uh, I remember one of my buddies, he was um, uh, responding to an altar call. And as he was running up, uh, the person in front of him got so hit by the spirit that he fell back and he actually hit my friend. And my friend fell on the ground as well. My friend was so embarrassed to get up in the middle of the altar call that he just lied there and stayed there. So, so we have a bunch of these stories that we collect over the years that we like, these are funny ministry stories. And so one of my uh, stories from ministry school is um, I have the privilege of being part of a prayer team on Sundays. And um, we'll usually stand at the front of stage. You know, the band is going. And people will come to the front and uh, respond uh, and, and ask for prayer for different needs and different uh, things that, that they want prayer for. And so uh, on one of the Sundays, um, a man came up to me and he wanted prayer for healing. And uh, he had a mouth full of uh, the case. And so uh, his teeth were in really bad shape and uh, it just, there was a smell and you know that, that everything is all not right in there. And so he came up to the altar call and uh, I was praying for him. And because the band was going and it was super loud, I had to lean in super close to him and, and pray for him. And if you pray for people, you know that you typically pray for one or two kinds of people. You pray for, you know, not, uh, Typical person who just stands there and receives the prayer. But you also pray for certain kinds of people who are full of faith and, and zeal and they go, Yes, Lord. Amen, Lord. Yes, yes, yes. And so he was responding to the prayer and, uh, and I was praying him with my eyes open and, and as I was praying for him and as, as he was responding, uh, saliva began to fly out of his mouth and, uh, my mouth was, uh, ajar at, uh, the right moments, and saliva went woo, and uh, landed on my tongue. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm most of the time a really polite guy, so I don't go like, ah! I, I was like, I'm just going to power through. And so I finished the prayer, and I'm like, God bless you, sir, amen. Uh, and so, I tell you, man, it's one of the worst tastes I've had in my mouth in my life. And it was just the taste of it was decay. It was like, oh, it was, it was gross. It was, it was horrible. The taste of decay in your mouth. But I, I, found, I found out that there's, there's something worse than feeling decay in the mouth. And that is a decaying soul. Ooh. See what I did there? <laughs> What do I mean by decaying soul? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. 
And the definition of decay is a deterioration, a disintegration to the point of death. And you know, it, it's one, it's something that we know about, something that we talk about from time to time, but, but it's something that we can so easily forget that sin has, I, I don't want to put it as it has tremendous power, but it definitely has the power to derail the Christian. It definitely has the power to sabotage destinies and sabotage callings and hinder relationship. Amen? And, you know, one of the most impacting uh, sermon uh, illustrations I've ever seen was um, Francis Chan, one Sunday, he, he came up to church and uh, he walked through the back door and he dragged a big uh, garbage bag. He dragged it up to the stage and then he put it on the stage. And then he took like a little feather duster and he went to the different corners of the church, just dusting different areas, just dusting the stage, dusting the speakers and stuff like that. And then afterwards, he proceeds to unravel what's inside the garbage bag and it was a huge pile of elephant dung. It's a pile of poop. How he got dung from an elephant, I don't know. But... Uh, I tried getting dung from an elephant and it's a lot harder than it is. So just settle for the picture of the illustration. <laughs> and so what he, this is what he was trying to say. He was trying to say this, that in church and with church leadership, we are often concerned about the things on, in the exterior, these little, little things, making sure everything is in order. But we don't tackle the elephant in the room. Or in that case, the elephant dung in the room. We don't, uh, we don't target the actual root issue. We don't target the things that actually matter. Yeah. These things, these peripherals, these like, uh, different uh, graphics, lights, they, they are great. They add value to the service experience. But how many of you know that these things in light of eternity, they don't matter as much? Uh, a person once said that our greatest fear in life is it's not that we are not successful, but it's in succeeding at things that don't matter. And so the question for you and me is, as Christians, and most of us are mature believers, are we succeeding at the things that matter? Or are we putting up a facade, a spiritual front? All form, but no power. All form, but no relationship. Happy 10th sermon anniversary. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's my role as your pastor, if you are willing, <laughs> and my role as a person that stands and has a microphone to, to challenge you on, on, on Sunday mornings, is to challenge you in your daily lives, to live a higher standard, to challenge you to, to be more sold out for the cause of Jesus Christ. And, and I think this, this is the goal of pulpit ministry. This is the goal of our time together. Not for me to just say nice things and make great jokes, <laughs> but to challenge you to live a, a, a fully sold out Christian life. Amen? See, I think we are at a point of the church globally, locally, globally. We're on the cusp of what I believe to be the greatest outpouring of God. Come on. We as a church, are also believing for a great harvest to come through um, Alpha and the different initiatives we have. But if you study the Bible and you study modern day revival history, you'll recognize that there are certain conditions, certain things present, prerequisites, if you will, to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to the harvest of souls. 
in Second Chronicles, okay, seven fourteen, it says, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land." Turn from your wicked ways. The next verse, Acts chapter two thirty eight, and this is Peter saying, he said, uh, "Repent, urge Peter, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." Repent. In the days of the Great Awakening, we saw that there was mass repentance that led to some of the greatest days of harvest ever seen on the face of the earth. I believe that repentance is a prerequisite to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to revival. Getting right with God is of paramount importance, first for the sake of your own soul, and then for the sake of the whole world. And this is what we're going to talk about this morning, repentance. Like the slide. Canva. <laughs> I'm determined to get a sponsorship. <laughs> you see, typically in church, there are two groups of people. Okay, One group, people who know about repentance, heard about repentance, sing about repentance, but do not actively walk in repentance in their lives. You know, in, in the early church, uh, early church fathers have these template prayers that, were, that they would pray on a daily basis. And they would pray, God, uh, we repent of every sin, we repent of every wrongdoing. And, and this was the practice of the early church. And I wonder whether we need to revisit some of these practices and we need to, to cultivate a, a sense of, of needing God and, and wanting to be right of God in every moment of our lives. If I were to ask all of us a question this morning, how many of you repent on a daily basis? I'm pretty sure not all of us can say yes. Second group of people are people, I believe, who have a misconception of what repentance truly is. And today, through my sermon, I want to address both groups of people and we'll pray together. Cool? Repentance is a biblical command. It says this, that says, unless you repent, you will by no means see, or I believe, enter the kingdom of God. Repentance is listed in Hebrews as the head of a list of six elementary Christian truths. See, I do not believe that repentance is just a one-time event. In the Lord's Prayer, it says this, it says, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How many of you? Remember that. And it also says, it says, give us this day our daily bread. We can then assume that this prayer, this lifestyle, the elements that are found in the prayer, the principles there are meant to be daily principles that we walk in. We enter into the life of a Christian, into a safe person, into salvation through two principles. We, we two, two things that we do. We confessed and we Repent, right? We confess and repent. Paul then says this, he says to work out your salvation with fear and traveling. And that work, the word work there, it means to continually do. If we enter into salvation by the means of confession and repentance, then can we safely assume that in order to continually do, in order to continually work out our salvation, we have to keep confessing and repenting. I'm making sense to you this morning. Don't fall. 
Here's where most of us are at. Repentance to us, most of us, looks like coming to the altar, kneeling down, crying, feeling very sorry and feeling very bad and feeling very guilty. Right? How many of you have that impression of what repentance is? You know, as, as a young person, um, we'll have these amazing altar calls and we'll come to stage and, and um, our altar in that day used to be made of, um, it was wood flooring. Beautiful, it was not carpet. So it was wood flooring. And so, as young people, we would run to the altar and we would cry our eyes out, snot dripping, you know, and it's like, it's like, oh, you know, spiritual people, they don't use tissues. They just let everything just flow down the overflow of my, and, and, and it just all dangles and it just forms a nice little puddle on the ground. And then when you get up, you're like, my puddle is bigger than your puddle. So I got that repentance thing down. <laughs> and you know it's a good service when you walk to the front and you just feel that stickiness on the sole of your feet. You're like, oh yeah, that is revival. That's all, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what, how we perceive repentance to be. It's, it's, it's sorrow. It's, it's, it's feeling bad. But how many of you know that repentance is so much more than sorrow, crying and feeling bad? Repentance is about transformation. I don't know about you, but I remember times in my life where I struggle with different sins and I'll come up to the altar call and have an amazing altar experience. But then on Monday, I'm back at it again. And in, when I go back at it again, I, I question the validity of my encounter. I question the validity of my church. I question the validity of my Christian faith. Because here's the thing, repentance is not just about sorrow. It's about transformation. The goal of repentance is not feeling bad. It's not sorrow. The goal of it is transformation. Am I making sense to you this morning? Repentance, if you study the wording, doesn't mean simply to avoid something. But it means to turn away and go unto something. And for the typical Christian, they are stuck in this mode. Their thought process is repentance is just feeling bad for this thing that they have done. But they don't go to step two, which is transformation. Walking unto something. Living differently. And that's the goal of repentance. That is what we are called to walk in. Amen? Does that make sense? I tell you, man, transform people, transform the world. And we long to see transformation in the world. Then you and I, we have to be transformed. You and I, we have to walk in that abundant life. Amen? I'm going to read a few scriptures from Romans 6. And this is talking about the believers, talking about uh, the believers' experience now that we are saved. It says this, For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For He who has died has been freed from sin. Beautiful. Next verse. says this. Oh, it's the same one? Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but life to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beautiful passage of Scripture. Here's the thing. If the life of Jesus ended at the crucifixion, it will be 
it would be incredibly anticlimactic, right? It's like Jesus, amazing messianic prophecies, signs and wonders, miracles, obedient unto death, died, uh, 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 died an innocent man, you know, uh, bore the weight of sin, he died, and then that's it. It would be incredibly anticlimactic, but the crescendo of the story of the life of Jesus is in the resurrection. Christians, you and me, myself included, we often are fixated on the cross and, and what he has accomplished for you and me. Beautiful. In the cross, what happened? Sin was nailed, sin was defeated, right? We've been cleansed by his blood. But our story does not end there. We get resurrected. We are freed from there and now we live differently. We live new lives. And Romans 6 says that this life that we now live, we live no longer born to sin, no longer slaves to sin, but now alive in Christ Jesus. That is the abundant life that you and I as believers are called to display, to express to the world. But if we ask ourselves the honest question this morning, how many of you can fully say that I am living out this verse? I am living out this abundant life. If an unbeliever were to come close to me, he would see this abundance in my life. And he will be instantly attracted to what I have, Jesus. Most of us are not at a place yet. See, I love the stories of people getting these radical encounters and being set free of addictions, being set free of problems immediately. But we often don't see the, the, uh, the, the follow-up to a story like that. Their freedom is something they have to constantly fight for, something they have to constantly preserve. The way I put it is that you, we all are familiar with the story where the children of Israel, they, they march towards Jericho, they walk around, Right, and then they yelled, and then the walls came down. But how many of you know that even though the walls came down, the city was not taken? They had to take a step over the rubble, defeat the armies in the city to take the city. And I think that's the picture of, of how the altar experiences. You come up here, you get your breakthrough, the walls come down. But there's a practical aspect to transformation. There is an aspect of co-laboring. There's aspect of something that you are supposed to do to walk out that transformation. And as believers, sometimes we, we think that everything is done and settled on the altar, but not knowing that there's a part for us to play. There's a piece of the puzzle that only we can fit. Does that make sense? In the same manner we receive salvation, transformation, repentance is something that we need to work out. The Bible then gives us this amazing verse. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. So I, I talked about repentance. I talked about transformation. I talked about a practical aspect that we are called to discover to walk out this transformation. And the Bible in Romans, it, 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 uh, it describes how to be transformed. Right? It's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says this, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that transformation happens when you renew your mind. Okay, I need you to follow me this, this morning. It's going to 
take a bit of a mental exercise. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word renewing of your mind is actually this word, the Greek word metanoia. Okay, everyone say metanoia. Okay. See, now you're all Greek scholars. Metanoia. Okay, metanoia, interestingly, means renew your mind, change the way you think. But it's also the word that Jesus uses when he says this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said, metanoia, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's interchangeable. Jesus is saying, repent is changing the way you think. It's not just sorrow. It's not just feeling guilty and bad about something. But it's actively changing the way you think unto transformation. And that is what metanoia is. And the truth is, the mind, our thought life is something that is not often talked about in churches today. We talk about the heart. We talk about the soul. But we rarely speak about the mind. But how many of you know that Jesus said this? He said that you shall love me with all of your heart, soul, and mind. He places the mind on an equal playing field with the heart and the soul. And the level of emphasis we put on the, on the heart and on the soul, we are called to put on the mind as well. Does that make sense? So Jesus, so let's recap. Okay, so I talk about sin. Follow me. Then I talk about how we are called to Repent. Okay? And repentance is not just sorrow, it's transformation. And now I'm talking about your mind. Right? Okay, so I have a few elements here. I'm going to link them all together for thread. Okay. So what has the mind, our thought life, got to do with getting free from sin? What has this thing, renew your mind, change the way you think? It seems so philosophical. How does this thing actually help me get free from certain bad behaviors, certain habits, certain indulgences, certain compromises. How does that work? When we study the, the, the fall of man, we recognize that Eve was deceived by the serpent. Everyone follow me. She was deceived. She underwent a certain amount of deception. And then she was tempted. And after she was tempted, she acted on that temptation. And that was where man fell. Deception, temptation, and action. Women fell, sorry. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so where, where did it start off? It started with deception. She believed certain lies. The Bible says that the truth shall set you free. Everyone know that. If truth equals freedom, Bondage equals lies. Just by how we are set free by embracing the truth, we are kept in bondage, we are kept imprisoned by lies that we believe. And that's what Jesus is trying to say. Jesus said, renew your mind, change the way you think. Dismantle these lies, dismantle these bad beliefs. Because these bad beliefs, this bad understanding, these bad views on, uh, toward God, toward yourself, they are actually not harmless. They actually produce certain behaviors that can be detrimental and dysfunctional to the believer. You got to change the way you think. You want to be transformed, change the way you think. Dismantle lies, embrace truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 to 5. 
It says this, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Our perception of warfare these days is copious amount of intercession, a lot of prayer, spiritual, prophetic acts, all great things. But in 2 Corinthians, he's saying this, that spiritual warfare looks like taking every thought into captivity. We have to recognize that the battlefield is not here. The battlefield is here. The only closed heaven that we experience today is between the ears, it's in our mind. So that's warfare. Taking every thought into captivity. It's a bit controversial, but I like to quote Mahatma Gandhi this morning in church. <laughs> it's, it's a bit edgy, but this is one of my favorite quotes. It says, it says, your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values. And your values become your destiny. See that? See how a belief, how a thought, as harmless as it looks, can derail you from a God-given destiny. Can throw you into a life that you don't want to live. I'm making sense to you this morning. And so I think we need to, to get on a, 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 go on a mission to dismantle all these lies that we believe. We, we use the truth of God's word, use the truth of who He says about us to dismantle these bad beliefs we have about ourselves and Him. One of the journeys I went on as a, a Christian is um, I, I bought uh, one of those little tally counters. And it's those uh, thing that, things that is metal and the ushers use it to count the attendance in the room. And, and I went on this mission and I was like, I'm going to dismantle every lie that I believe and I'm going to replace it with the truth of God's word, with the truth of who he says I am. And I took this thing and, and I hide in my bedroom for, for hours and I made it a point to do a thousand decorations a week. I will actually verbalize these things that I believe are God's truth for my life and God's truth about who he is. And so I'll go, Andre is awesome. Andre is set free. Andre is no longer bound to sin. Andre is loved by God. And I'll go for hours. And, and what happened is that at the end of a month of doing that, of doing a thousand decorations a week, I saw myself getting free from certain bad habits. I saw myself getting free from sin. That was how I got free from pornography. Because here's my belief. I believe that, that sin is, is, is only a byproduct of a bad belief system. Sin is only a byproduct of lies you're believing about yourself and about the Lord. And so yes, we can correct the behavior, but true transformation comes when your thinking changes. Am I making sense to you? Yeah. Whew. And so I think there are personal lies that we've got to work through. There are things that we, we think personally that we just got to work through in, in our own devotion, in our own time of the Lord. But this morning, I want to present to you five lies I believe Christians believe that keep them bound. Okay? Five lies that keep Christians bound. And, and this in, in my... Um, study in my course of interaction with people, I realized are uh, five predominant lies that have infiltrated the church, that have infiltrated the belief systems 
of believers. How many of you find it interesting that we call ourselves believers, but we often struggle with our beliefs? <laughs> or we often struggle with believing God for things? <laughs> Isn't it funny that who we are called to be is our greatest struggle? Can I release a truth this morning that the things that you're struggle, struggling with right now, you're called to have the most authority in? Snap. Okay. First lie says this. The, the enemy says this to me often. It says this. My temptations define me. Defines me. Define me? No S? Define. No S. Ignore the S. <laughs> My temptations define me. How many of you have, have thought that way? You know, you, you have certain thoughts and, and certain things that you are like, oh, these things in my head, like they're so messed up. They're so messed up to the point that I can't even articulate this thing because I, I just feel so dirty and I feel so disgusted with myself. And what happens typically, you begin to associate with these thoughts, yeah? You begin to go, these are my thoughts, these are my temptations. And how many of you know that the things you associate with, you automatically align with and those things that you align with, you automatically live out. If your temptations define you, then Jesus would be easily the most sinful man that ever walked on the earth. Because Hebrews says, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way. In every possible manner, he was tempted. But yet, he ended his life sinless, blameless, faultless. Why is that so? Can I put it to you that your temptations do not define you, that these thoughts even though it's so convincing that it's yours, are not really yours. Second Corinthians 10, the verse that we read earlier, says that casting down every argument that presents itself against the knowledge of God, taking every thought into captivity. I want to say this over you this morning, that don't let your temptations have power over you. They don't. All power and all authority has been given to Jesus Christ. And now by extension to His church and to His people. The things that have power over you are things that you accord power to. They have no power unless you agree to give power away. These are not my temptations. These are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> Next lie we're going to look at says this I will find satisfaction in sin. I will find satisfaction in sin. How many of you have thought that way before? If I just indulge in this a little bit, I will get satisfied and I won't want it any longer. Or I'll get satisfied and then I'll just get over my kick and then, and then I'm done. Every time I indulge in sin, yes, the, the process might feel great, but at the end of it, I, I sit there and I feel empty. I feel empty and, and I don't feel empty for long because guilt and shame comes along very quickly. <laughs> you know, uh, I might have shared this story before, but um, when I was younger, I used to have these really bad sinus issues and my nose would get horribly blocked and uh, I, it would lead me to not be able to sleep at night. And so I would lay in bed uh, often uh, awake, you know, into the early hours and uh, I was still schooling then. And uh, I would 
walk out my room and uh, my dad will be in the living room and he'll be smoking a cigarette. And so there was once I was walking out and I uh, actually took a whiff of that smoke. And I don't know how it works, but it actually cleared up my nostrils. So I was like, wow, magic smoke. And so, and so from that day onwards, I made it a point every night to walk out when my dad is smoking a cigarette and just take a big whiff of that smoke to clear up my nostrils. So that brought like, Gratification that brought comfort and, and it eased up this like thing I was feeling. But how, you, how many of you know that that temporal gratification has a lasting permanent uh, effect on my body? And that is what sin is. Only that because of Jesus Christ, that effect is no longer permanent. But that temporal satisfaction, that temporal gratification that you're indulging in, it has the ability to destroy you. The wages of sin is death. You think you may find satisfaction in this, but you'll only find death. It's like taking a McSpicy at 12 midnight. (laughs) Temporal gratification. And then waking up in the morning. Just not a happy camper. You feel the effects this way, and you feel the effects... The other way. <laughs> Full of regret. <laughs> How many of you have done that before? Make spicy at 12 midnight. That's a bad, bad idea, man. With cheese. <laughs> I think we all need to go on this thing where we, we, we go on a mission to adjust what we have an appetite for. What you find appealing is what you have an appetite for or you have cultivated an appetite for. If you're constantly Instagram stalking pretty girls, you do it on a daily basis, you keep doing it, keep doing it, you are cultivating an appetite for, for, for these things, for, for lust, for pornography, you're cultivating it. If you are constantly on your phone, window, online shopping, nowadays you don't need to go to the actual window, you can do it on your phone. You're constantly doing it, every day you're looking at stuff, and like, I want to buy that, I want to buy that. You're cultivating covetousness in your heart. What you have an appetite for is what you find appealing. And if you want to be transformed, you want to be free from this thing, you have to change what you find appealing. Does that make sense? When Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut off your hand. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck out your eye. How many of you know that he's, he doesn't mean it literally? Right? <laughs> this is not a joke, but I have a friend that actually met a friend that actually did that. He, he cut off his arm, uh, his hand, and then he sewed it back, and then it never worked the same way again. Wait, okay, so I, I love the, the passion in the man's heart, you know, but do not agree with the methodology. How many of you know that Jesus is not saying, go and cut off your hand, right? That would be ridiculous. But, you know, sometimes when we approach the Bible, we have to approach it with like, okay, is this something that is meant to be applied literally in my life, or am I called to find out the governing principle over what Jesus is trying to say? And so this is what I believe Jesus is trying to say to us and to his disciples. He's trying to say that remove any opportunity 
or any ability for you to indulge in sin. If being at home alone, being in your bedroom alone, gives you the opportunity and the ability to indulge in it, stop that. If having a lot of cash in your pocket gives you the opportunity and the ability to do that, get rid of that ability. That is how we adjust our appetite, how we adjust what our heart craves of, what we find appealing. Does that make sense? Remove every opportunity and ability to indulge in sin. Next lie, I believe, that has crept its way into the church. It says, my good will outweigh my bad. My good will outweigh my bad. When I first became a believer, I looked at Christianity like a scale. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a scale and it's being balanced. And uh, I always need to do more good things to outweigh the bad. And then I'll be found in good standing. And then I'll make my way to heaven. Right? How many of you have thought that way before? Just me? Just Andre? Just Andre. Okay. (laughs) Really, right? But it is not good people that will get to heaven. It's saved people. See, the Bible says that yours and my righteousness, they are like filthy rags. And if you study the wording used to describe filthy rags, it means this. It means a cloth that is soaked in menstruation blood. That is what the word filthy rags means. It says, yours and mine, all the good things, we th- how good we think we are, all the good things we perceive we are doing, they're like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of the Lord. Why would you want to keep on to a filthy rag when you can embrace His righteousness? See, it, it's, it's almost like the principle of, uh, of karma has, has made its way into the church. That when I do more good things, I will get more good things. When I do bad things, I will attract more bad things. But how many of you that, that know that that's not biblical? If you got what was coming to you, you'll be dead. We're all sinners. Right? At one point in our lives, at one point in our lives, we were sinners. We would have attracted death to ourselves. But how many of you know that because of the cross, you did not get what you deserved, but you got what He deserved? Next lie. It says this. I have a sin nature, therefore I sin. I have a sin nature, therefore I sin. How many of you remember Adam and Eve? We talked about them a couple of times this morning. Adam and Eve were in the garden, yes? They were created by the Lord. And what did the Lord say about their cre- this creation? He said that they are very good, right? And so he said this. They are very good. They are not just good. They are very good. What happened? Adam and Eve, they sinned. Right? Did God create them with a sin nature? No. But then they sinned. See, I want to put it to you that you don't need a sin nature to sin. You don't need a sin nature to sin. All you need is free will and bad beliefs and bad decisions. And you can sin. The tendency is this. The tendency is that we tend to create identity from the things that we do instead of what the Lord says we are. And who says we, who he says we are? We often profess to be sinners. I get that. I get the humility of your hearts. I get that this is this is a recognition of, of all that Christ has done for us. But how many of you know that you are sinners no longer? 
you are set free from that. And the tendency is for us to associate with this identity of being a sinner. And whatever you associate your identity with, you will then live out. If you believe you are a sinner, you will sin by faith. This is me. I do these things. I am a sinner. Therefore, I sin. You have been set free from a sin nature. Your struggle does not define you. Your struggle no longer defines you. Yes, you may sin, but you're a saint having a sinful experience. It doesn't change who you are. A bad decision doesn't change the price that he's paid for you. It's sufficient. It's enough. Last lie. Are we ready for this? Okay. Last lie. I will only be free from sin when I die. How many of you believe this lie? At one point in your life. You'll only be free from sin when you die. Tendency for, most of us, you know, maybe not most of us, but, but there is a tendency for us to push all the promises of God into the afterlife, into heaven, and then take on all the, the more bad and more horrific stuff. You're like, oh yeah, these are going to happen today. But all these like, promises of being set free, of peace on peace, of, of, being, uh, of seeing a greater glory, yeah, these are like all the future things. If we push it away, not recognizing that these things are, are meant to be lived in the here and now. He promises us this abundant life. And that life is, is not in reference to a mansion in heaven. It's, it's in reference to the here and now. That word life, that word sozo, it means wholeness, it means completeness, fullness. That you and I have the opportunity to access here and now. And by accessing it, by living sozo, by living that fullness, that wholeness, that freedom, we attract people to the saving beauty of Jesus Christ. If you're only set free from sin when you die, then death is your savior, not Jesus. If you're only set free from sin when you die, then death is your savior, not Jesus. I'm making sense to you this morning. Five lies. We're going to recap these five lies real quick. Start from the first one. It says this. Five lies. It says, my temptation define me. That is a lie. Your temptation does not define you. It does not form your identity. Jesus does. Next slide. It says, I will find satisfaction in sin. You will not. Satisfaction comes in eating that bread of life, drinking from that river of life. Next one, it says, this, my good will outweigh my bad. Your good is but a filthy rag. Cling on the goodness of God. His righteousness is perfect. Next one, it says this, I have a sin nature, therefore I sin. You're a sinner no longer. You're a saint set free by the blood of Jesus, sanctified by Him. You may have a sinful experience every now and then, but it no longer defines you. Your struggle does not define you. Last one, I will only be free when I die. No siree, you get to be free today. Can we stand? Amen, amen. How many of you found that helpful? Yes? Yes?
this morning, I want to pray for y'all before y'all leave. Y'all. I mean, can, can we be honest here? How many of you are struggling with something right now? Yeah? How many of you want to be set free from the struggle? Yeah? See, the Bible says, the Bible says that when sin abounds, His grace abounds. And grace is not just a fluffy concept. Grace means divine empowerment. It means that what you're trying to do you, are, you recognize that you do not have the ability to bring it to completion. And it's with humility of the heart that you ask for grace. And that divine empowerment comes from heaven. And it backs you up. And so some of you, you may have been struggling for years now, for months, with certain sins, with certain bad habits, with certain struggles, certain compromises. And this morning, I want to tell you that you can be free of that. Today, you can be free of that while you're on the earth. You don't have to wait till you die. You don't have to wait till you're in heaven. You get to be free today because He promises you that abundant life. He promises you that freedom. You get to have it today. It says this about grace. It says that in the ages to come, He will reveal His grace that is without measure. In the ages to come, in eternity, we will still be scratching the surface of what His grace means. Can I put it to you that if grace is relevant 100,000 years from now, it surely is relevant today. And so I want to pray for you. I want to ask for an impartation of grace to come upon this place this morning. That you will truly be set free from compromise. That you will truly be set free from sin, from bad habits. That you will truly be set free to live a life Revealing all that the cross has accomplished. And so I want you to close your eyes and begin to lift your hands. If that's something you need, just begin to put a demand on God, put a demand on heaven this morning. And just ask for grace. Just ask for grace. We don't want that elephant down in the room no longer. We are addressing that elephant right now. We say sin no longer. Compromise no longer. Set free right now. In Jesus' name, we ask for grace to come upon this place right now. For the power of God to break every bondage, for the power of God to break every shackle right now in Jesus' name. Chains, I command you to fall right now in the name of Jesus. You have no hope, you have no power. All power and authority has been given to Jesus Christ. And right now, in the name of Jesus, I command you to fall right now. Just keep going. Just, just put a demand on heaven. Ask for grace. Ask for grace. Lord, we ask for your grace. Grace that's sufficient.
I want you all to just pair up with two or three people. I just want you to, to spend some time ministering to each other and, and just ask for God's grace to touch the people around you. That as a church, we'll be freed from sin once and for all. That we will model what it's like to live that abundant life in Christ Jesus. More than prospering our careers, we want to prosper in our souls. So pair up, get into groups and begin to pray for one another.